Life Audio. You are listening to The Beckett Cook Show with your host, Beckett Cook. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. To help support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash the Beckett Cook Show. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a five-star rating. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Today I have a very special guest, Dr. David Berlinski. We're going to be talking about his new book, Science After Babel. If you don't know who David Berlinski is, he is one of my favorite people. He's probably one of the smartest people in the world. He lives in Paris. So it's, it's uh, I think, 7 p.m. his time in Paris and 10 a.m. my time here in L.A. And he's a writer. He's a thinker, a raconteur, a polymath. He's a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute. He received his Ph.D. in philosophy from Princeton University and was later a postdoctoral fellow in mathematics and molecular biology at Columbia University. He has also taught philosophy, mathematics, and English at universities such as Stanford, Rutgers, the City University of New York, and the University of Paris. He's written many books, including The the Deniable Darwin, which we might touch on today, and also The Devil's Delusion, Atheism and Its Scientific Pretensions. The reason I wanted to have David Berlinski on the show is because he he's not a Christian. He's a secular Jew, but he's a co-belligerent. And he, he blows giant holes through Darwin's theory of evolution. He's an, he's, he's an iconoclast, and he tears down the idols of the scientific community, especially when it comes to the theory of evolution. So I'm excited to talk to him about that today, and I hope you enjoy the show. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Let's talk about science after Babel. Why, why this title? What, what is this title? Because this is obviously the you have a an image of uh, Bluffles. I think that's the way you say his name. Bluffles um, Tower of Babel. His his Tower of Babel on the cover. What what does this title mean? Well. Go back to the, the original idea of a Tower of Babel. Uh, you've got a group of architects with a wonderful idea. We'll build the tower till it reaches the heavens. Just a magnificent edifice. And uh, what God did was look at this folly, contemplate it, 
And he devised the extraordinary solution of confounding the architects by separating their languages so they couldn't communicate. The building was constructed to a certain extent, the extent limited by their inability to coordinate their construction, but it is incoherent in part. That said, it is also important to recognize from the painting and from the biblical story that the building still stands, and I think that's equally important. Science after Babel represents our great institutional achievement, our great institutional intellectual achievement. To a certain extent, the architects have been confounded. The building does display signs of incoherence, but there it is anyway, it's still standing. And this seems to me uh, both a remarkably interesting parable and a remarkably interesting achievement. And why, why this book now? That's really not a fair question to ask a writer. <laughs> Any time is a good time. Any time is a good time to write a book. And you dedicated the book to Stephen Meyer, who makes the case. I love Stephen Meyer. He makes the case for intelligent design. And he's the author of Darwin's Doubt and the Return of the God Hypothesis. Sure. Why dedicate it to Stephen Meyer? Because he's a, he's a great old friend. We've been together uh, as friends. <laughs> I think since about 1997, 1998, very old friendship. We've been through thick and thin. We um, talk together endlessly. We've run conferences together. And certainly, we do not agree on all essential points. It's impossible. It's impossible over the age of 10 to have a friendship where you agree completely. <laughs> and even a love affair where you assume that the penetration of two souls is absolutely complete hardly lasts longer than six months, as we all know, where <laughs> the two souls separate and diverge. Um, but nonetheless, the friendship is an enduring one, and I thought it entirely appropriate to dedicate the book to the friendship. And what yeah. is Yes, and so, I, of course, you get into Darwin, and I want to I start with Darwin uh, in your book, and... Uh, you say that, let me turn to page 19, you say, <clears throat> and this is the chapter called The Evidence for Evolution. You say, evolution, it is held, takes place over a very long time. The human hand evolved from the inhuman paw step by step, one incremental improvement following another, a torturous process, endlessly delayed, endlessly extended. No one, of course, has actually seen the whole business at work. Can you comment on that? Well, a great deal of, of the uh, ostensible power of evolutionary theory, and it is a theory with a great deal of ostensible power, most of it cultural, not scientific in my judgment, resides in the claim that there is no way in which human beings can actually contemplate the evidentiary panorama from 4.1 4 billion years ago to the present moment because it's too large uh, a collocation of separate moments in time. What we can do is try to infer the pattern from isolated bits of evidence. But no one has seen the development, for example, of the human hand unfold completely over the course of four billion years. It's vastly too much information to absorb. Perhaps 
with the advent of artificial intelligence, some more systematic appreciation of the data might be possible. These are very powerful systems, and they're designed to synthesize very, very small bits of statistical information. I don't know. It's a possibility. I can't rule that out. But as far as evolutionary biology today goes, there's a great deal that hinges on this inference from the isolated snapshots that we've made, a dozen, two dozen, a hundred, to the panorama itself, which is continuous ostensibly, such as the nature of the theory, from 4.1 billion years ago to the present moment. We'll be right back after this short break. And I've heard you talk about the irony of Darwin's the, on the origin of species because the the difficulty of the word species. And then you talk about you've talked about kind of the uh, the example of a dog, the species right. of a dog. Can you can you talk about that a little bit about how species is in, uh, impossible in Darwin's theory? A species. Well, it's not that species are impossible on Darwin's theory. It's just that it's very, very difficult. And Darwin understood this completely with the famous passage. I, I think I put a reference in the book, but I'm not absolutely positive, where he says species are just artifacts. They don't really exist. What exists are the individuals. If you think of the dogs, right? There they are, the pooches. And you step back in time, dog after dog after dog, you say, well, the species is just the set of all dogs. Well, we know something about sets. We know what they are. They're determined by their members. The set of dogs is comprised of dogs. All right. So they're the dogs, Rufus and Gucci and Rex and Rin Tin Tin. And there is the set of dogs, which is above the dogs or below the dogs, wherever you want to put it. It's an abstract object, but perfectly pertinent to an evolutionary scenario. What this means is that if you go back along the line of dogs, one wolf after the other, going back in time, you reach a point inevitably where something is a dog, but it's not derived from a dog. The set of dogs is finite after all. It's not an infinite set. It's not like the natural numbers. Is that really plausible? Darwin asked, and I'm asking the same question. You've got the set of dogs. You've got the first dog. And the first dog is not descended from a dog. It's descended from something else. That seems far too radical a transition for Darwinian theory, because Darwinian theory is fundamentally a 19th century theory, entirely contingent on Darwinian assumptions of continuity between biology and physics, and physics, 19th century physics, continuous science, depends on the continuum. And Darwin had that very much in mind, the continuum of animal forms changing progressively over time. Well, the idea of an isolated species, a collection of dogs assembled into a set, doesn't fit very naturally with that. There seems to be an abrupt transition. First dog in the set, there he is, Rex, I don't know, 10,000 years ago, maybe in Siberia, sitting there, woofing, waiting for dinner, just like any other dog. He is a dog, after all. But you ask, who is Rex descended from? Well, it can't be a dog. Because sooner or later you run out of dogs. It's a finite set. So it's got to be something else. Well, a wolf? Well, okay, he's descended from a wolf. But then the transition from the set of wolves to the set of dogs is abrupt. It's discontinuous. And that doesn't fit very well with Darwin's idea that only very small incremental changes 
can persuade one group of organisms to transform or be transmuted into another group of organisms. That doesn't go with the theory. Now you may say, well, wrong object. They're not, dogs are not a set. All right, what are they? As far as Darwin was concerned, when he really thought about this issue, as far as I'm concerned, it's dogs all the way. There is nothing above the dogs, like the species. And therefore, in a very real sense, <clears throat> although it's a rhetorically cheap sense, I agree, the problem that Darwin set out to solve, the origin of species, disappears because there are no species. That doesn't mean the biological questions that disappear. That doesn't mean that at all. But right. just bear in mind that there is a point of tension between the title, the interrogative announcement embedded in the title, and the answer. Nobody picks up the origin of species, reached Darwin to discover that the origin of species is there are no species. That's not a satisfying answer. But yet Darwin was aware of this, and he understood that there were some fairly deep issues about uh, the concepts of theoretical biology that needed to be addressed. So, well, then we come to one of, you know, the, the, the Cambrian explosion, which kind of blows a giant hole through the theory, Darwin's theory. Talk about what is the Cambrian explosion and what does it mean in terms of Darwin's theory of evolution? Well, you know, I haven't paid much attention. I, I wrote an essay about Darwin in the 1990s when the significance of the Cambrian explosion was becoming manifest. This is, um, if you look all the way back to half a million years ago, uh, and you look at what existed before, the so-called Edicarian flora and fauna, you know, blobs swimming in the ocean, uninteresting animal forms, weird sponges, things like that. Uh, all of a sudden, at, with the advent of the Cambrian, you discover almost the great majority of contemporary body forms appearing rather suddenly in the fossil record without evident predecessors. So you didn't see you didn't see incre incremental changes in in uh, organisms. Believe in me, I didn't see anything because I'm not about to go exploring uh, the fossil <laughs> record. Yes, considered a horrible idea. But uh, the paleontologists who make this a special a specialty find it very difficult to account for the origin of, or at least fifteen different. Um, body plants in the Cambrian explosion in a relatively short amount of time, say maximum 20 million years, which is hardly anything in evolutionary terms. And uh, the origin of these body plants is very mysterious because they're not trivial. They don't represent uh, what's sometimes denoted as small, shelly uh, fauna, um, suddenly, suddenly acquiring an additional shell or perhaps a filament here. No, these are radical reconfigurations, if they are reconfigurations at all. These are radical, radically new kinds of body plants. And that's, uh, that's one of the um, abrupt occurrences in the fossil record. <clears throat> this is now a matter of evidence, not of theory or conjecture. This is one of the uh, abrupt occurrences in the fossil record. It's very puzzling. Now, it's, it's a long time ago, that's for sure. And the last word about fossil deposits has not been said, that's for sure as well. But it is a point of perplexity, and a great many very sensitive scholars uh, have been studying the, Cam the Cambrian explosion. Uh, 
with hardly anything like a real consensus. This is what happened. Indeed, I think some of the stuff we have about uh, the Big Bang in astrophysics is better documented than the Cambrian explosion, which is kind of mysterious, but much further back than that. Fif- like 15 billion years ago. 14.1 billion years ago. But we have a better grasp of the fundamental physics. Um, that's not to say we know that the fundamental physics that we are grasping is correct because there are many pieces of that puzzle that are missing as well. But the depth of theoretical understanding when it comes to what Steven Weinberg called the first three minutes seems to be much more sophisticated than our understanding of the Cambrian flood with respect to the origin of new new forms of life, new body plans, new ways of interpreting the environment. We really lack a certain portion of the evidence, but we also lack the right conceptual tools. We don't really know the question we're asking. What are we really asking when we see something in the fossil record, for example, we've never seen before? It's not like asking what are we looking at when we see a new molecule appearing? Because we have a theory for that new molecule, but it's got to be formed from something else. We know the chemical pathways. This is what might have occurred. This is what must have occurred. This is what could not have occurred. We have a theory for that. But body plants, structures, living organisms, we don't have much of a theory. And what do people like people like Stephen Jay Gould, who's the evolutionary biologist at Yale, what what would he what does he say about the Cambrian explosion? He was at Harvard, by the way, not at Yale. I mean Harvard, sorry. Um, look, it, Stephen Jay Gould, like like so many other popularizers, has two faces. One is addressed to his public, the other is addressed to his colleagues. Uh, one is for public consumption, the one is never to be repeated in public. <laughs> um, what he said to the public was, I, I haven't looked at every remark that he may have made about the Cambrian, but he basically more or less said, yes, Cambrian explosion, rather mystifying, and certainly fits with an evolutionary theory. Um, what he said in private, I suspect, is we haven't a clue. We really don't understand this. Uh, many of Stephen Jay Gould's remarks were remarkably critical of evolutionary theory, especially in his last book, the one that goes on for 1,500 pages, longer than War and Peace. Um, he, he was quite specific in some of his criticisms. And uh, to continue with, with Gould, he, where is it? He, um, you say that in the 1970s, a number of biologists were convinced that they had they had taught ch- chimpanzees and the great apes to talk. Uh, what talk about that? And and what what was the actual result of that? Well, that what's, what's really the question? I mean, the idea that animals can talk is a very old idea, and it's a very pregnant idea because it's remarkable that they can't. Or at least it's remarkable that they don't talk. It's entirely possible that they have the ability but cannot externalize it. That's tragic in its, its implications. Uh, very Anyone who's had a pet has that feeling. You know, you look at, into a dog's eyes, or even a cat's eyes for that matter, certainly a monkey's eyes. You have the feeling they, they wish to express their thoughts, but they can't. That doesn't mean they don't have the thoughts. It means the machinery for externalization is not in place. They can't go from having the thoughts in mind to projecting the thoughts out. But be that as it may, 
the fact is human powers of language are absolutely unique in the animal kingdom so that human beings are very very much outliers with respect to the rest of the animal kingdom and and the division the distinction between human beings say as our nearest relatives in the simian kingdom is enormous it's just enormous not quite explained by brain size not quite explained by adaptation not quite explained by social pressures it's not explained at all. There it is. Human beings have acquired language, but they have also acquired the ability to use language, to, to project it the way we're, we're doing now. I'm, I'm expressing my thoughts in a way that you can grasp. You're expressing your thoughts in a way I can grasp. We're able to communicate in this fashion, and no other species is quite able to do that. That really should not happen on Darwinian terms. That's not quite what the theory suggests. The, the theory is a 19th century continuous theory. And incremental improvements should be smeared across the palette of animal life. This doesn't look like anything comparable to a smeared palette. It looks like a radical discontinuity. And don't forget, the radical discontinuity amplifies, it reverberates, because we have language, we have art, because we have language and art, we have mathematics, because we have language, art, and mathematics, we have science. Because we have science, we have the rudiments of civilization. Because we have civilization, we build things that the chimpanzees never dreamt about. Cities, for example, banking systems, airplane travel, we go to the moon, they don't. The Chrysler oh. building. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> All these things are, are radical. And it, it seems to me that uh, an enormous amount of very good, solid scientific intelligence has been devoted to demonstrating that what is radical and discon discontinuous is not radical and not discontinuous either. That seems to me pointless, a fruitless kind of endeavor. Yeah, and at the end of this chapter, you say that I love this, uh, you know, you're very funny. Dr. Berlitsky, you say 17th century Jesuits wondered why dogs do not talk. Their conclusion bears repeating. They have nothing to say. Well, th that was not really intended as a joke. That was the conclusion of 17th century Jesuits. And I think it's true. They have nothing to say because they can't say anything. That doesn't mean there's nothing going on. Yeah. I, mean, I, 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 I can't say I have any evidence certainly no experiments I could point to, but I think we underestimate the sophistication of animal psychology, the cognitive powers of animals. Uh, I think that the problem is, is really one of inadequate externalization, very severe limitations placed on what their brains can express, not what their brains can entertain, but I may be completely wrong. They may just be dumb as dogs for all I know. I just don't know. I like to think that the dogs have a wealth of interesting ideas. You know, there's a wonderful episode of The Simpsons. Remember that? Um, no, I don't. Astronauts uh, are sitting around the table, and um, the head astronaut has his back to the other one. And one astronaut asks the other, should we be telling the public what we discovered out in space? And the chief of section turns his chair, and you can see it's a chimpanzee smoking a briar pipe, and he says, no, I don't think we'll be telling them that. <laughs> <laughs> Just for a moment. But that's, 
and, and you know, there are wonderful short stories. Kafka has a beautiful short story. It's called A Report to the Academy, and it's delivered by, by a chimpanzee who's learned to talk. Right. It's a tantalizing theme, not only in, in popular comedy, uh, sitcoms, cartoons, but throughout Western literature. Comedy. Yeah, and... Uh, and you say in the book, you say some philosophers have always found something fishy in the Darwinian theory of evolution, and you focus in on the concept of fitness. Can you talk about fitness and how that that is uh, troublesome for philosophers? Well, what is the fit? What is the meaning popularly associated with fitness? Survival. Yeah. Why do why do certain certain traits or attributes or properties survive? Because they're they're more fit than others. Yeah, that's the problem. You're just going around in a circle. So it's a tautology, basically. It's not a tautology in the precise sense. It's just a, a conceptual circle. It doesn't advance as anything. Certain things survive, sure. Uh, frequency of, of genes varies, sure. Why does it happen? Well, there were certain advantages. How do you know there are advantages? Well, they're there, aren't they? <laughs> right there. Yes. And why, why do all mammals have uh, roughly five fingers, wings or, or paws or heads? Why five fingers, not 11? Well, it survived, didn't it? Yeah, all right, but tell me why it survived. What well, was fit? 11 would be an embarrassment of riches. How do you know it was fit? Well, there it is. Look. There, there is, I, I don't want to say this is a catastrophe in reasoning. Um, after all, Newton's first law, force equals mass times acceleration, has, has the same circularity. What is force? It's mass times acceleration. What is mass times acceleration? Well, that's force. Uh, there's a certain circularity built into everything that is not completely precise logically. We can live with certain imprecisions. We, we get the general idea. But there is an important point. When we talk about fitness, when we talk about fitness functions, or when in, in systems of artificial general intelligence we talk about gradient descent, um, we are implicitly assuming that uh, something need not be demonstrated from first principles. By first principles, I mean a general statement to the effect before the evidence is in, that certain properties or attributes of biological systems are valuable in certain environments. Say, having two hands, having two legs, having a brain of a certain size, having binocular vision, you name it. But we'd like a, a, a large master list of items that promote fitness before we have to look at what items actually have survived. Then we could derive from first principles a challenging hypothesis to the extent that this property or that property can be derived from first principles, general principles of biological adaptation and usefulness. We predict that when we look at organisms, most organisms, say in the mammalian group, will have appendages with five, five fingers or five, five bones at least. Then we can compare that to theory. We can compare evidence to theory. Right now, we can't do that. All we can do is look at what there is. That's not nothing. That's fine. I, I believe that what survives, survives. It's one of my firmest 
most firmly held beliefs. But I don't think that explains a whole lot. Yes. Let's talk about the Pacific salmon. Uh, you talk about this in your book. And you say, why do, you know, you're talking about how they, they mate and, or how they, um, uh, what's the word? Spawn. How they spawn. And you say, you know, why do they bother these salmon? No other fish requires such an elaborate apparatus of misery and migration. And you say the desirability, speaking fish-wise, of an infinitely complicated reproductive routine is never demonstrated within Darwinian theory nor derived from general qualitative principles. That's exactly the point. Um, it, it is an extraordinary story. Uh, there's something unbelievably tragic because the fish that overcome these innumerable obstacles, they're swimming against the current after all, for tens and tens of miles, <coughs> perhaps hundreds of miles, and up waterfalls and a raging torrent at all time, and they're, they're far too busy to feed properly. Uh, they reach the headwaters with, where they themselves were born, they spawn, and they die. Um, there, there is a relationship there that I think is profoundly suggests the relationship between um, procreation, spawning, gestation, life, and death. We can all see that. We can all see that. But why does this fish do that? That's what we can derive from general principles. There should be a theory that says, look, we got a fish like the Pacific salmon. Here's what we predict about this fish. We predict that unlike the Atlantic salmon, I don't know what, what the Atlantic salmon does, uh, unlike any other fish, this one goes back up the river to spawn. And here is why. These are the features that it has which makes it incumbent from a Darwinian, Darwinian point of view to return to its ancestral breeding ground. This is what gives it an advantage. And I'd like to see that before I see those swell nature documentaries about the Pacific Sound. I want to see that before. I want to see that in the biology textbook. Given the Pacific Salmon, this is what we predict about its spawning behavior. It's the same point. Yeah. It's and not for nothing, though, that we recognize the behavior as remarkable. That is, that is something of value. Biology does teach us to cherish the singular, the odd, the unexpected. But it's very far from explaining. Very far. Yes. And you, you say that, let's talk about mathematicians, which you, of course, are a mathematician. You say among the mathematicians you knew roughly from 1970 to 1995, the general attitude toward Dar Darwin's theory was one of skepticism. Why particularly mathematicians? Well, let me just correct you and say I would go back to 1966. 1965-66, I was at Stanford and talking to a lot of logicians and, and uh, mathematicians. Uh, why mathematicians? Because, by and large, they're out of the academic status system. You know, let's be honest, the mathematicians kind of look down on everyone else in the academic <laughs> world. They look yeah. down upon them because they know perfectly well they can't do mathematics. That is, they can't do mathematics as well as the professionals. The physicists, it's a separate story. They're much more deeply invested 
in the academic status system than the mathematician. But what's the best that can happen to a mathematician? The very best in terms of status. He's not going to have a sensational career as a teacher, maybe one or two. He's not going to in, in, encourage the love of beautiful women. He's not going to become very wealthy unless he turns to gambling or illicit drugs. Um, if anything, he'll win a few prizes that no one has ever heard of. Have you ever heard of the Abel Prize? No. no. Nobody else has either. It's a very distinguished prize given only to the top mathematician. So all forms of competition are internal to mathematics, and there's only one standard, how smart you are. It makes for a very depressing community, but it makes for a very honest community. So they're indifferent. I mean, a mathematician can say to another mathematician, you know, my son brought home, or my daughter brought home, Darwin's the art of the species. I've never read anything more preposterous. Not a symbol in the whole thing, no mathematics, no deep theorems, nothing. It's just a lot of gibberish, rhetorical gibberish. The other mathematician will say, fine, it's a rhetorical gibberish. Well, let's go back to uh, algebraic topology. Nobody else in the academic world can quite afford to be that insouciant. <laughs> a physicist gets up and says, you know, I don't really believe in Darwin's theory of evolution. You can hear the doors of the Nobel Prize snapping shut. That's yeah. Are out of his mouth. Somebody in Stockholm says, "Uh oh, not that guy." Smack. So it's a different system. I know you say that uh, you talk about the symposium. I think it was a Wistar symposium. Yeah. In April of 1966, and Peter Medivar, I think that's how you say his name, Medivar. He he says, "Quote: The immediate cause of this conference is a pretty widespread sense of dissatisfaction about what has come to be thought of as the accepted evolutionary." evolutionary theory in the English-speaking world, the so-called neo-Darwinian theory, these objections, objections to current neo-Darwinian theory are very widely held among biologists generally, and we must on no account, I think, make light of them. And you go on to say that no prominent biologist would today dream of expressing a sense of dissatisfaction about evolutionary theory. Well, you know, it, it why falls, is that? Why is it? Why has it shifted so dra uh, dramatically? Well, look, all I can do, I'm not a sociologist. I haven't been out studying um, the mating habits of biologists or anything like that. In the 50s or 60s, you could say anything you want about Darwinian theory. Look, when I, when I was an undergraduate at Columbia, the first course I took was a course in comparative anatomy. We had to dissect the dogfish a whole year in a stinking dissection room. During the entire course, not a word was ever said about evolutionary biology. We just didn't enter, enter discourse. And we all knew the molecular biologists had done something remarkable, Crick and Watson discovery of DNA. We all knew that was very exciting stuff, but it didn't seem to have anything obvious to do with dogfish evolution. And that continued through the 60s in graduate school, nobody ever mentioned a word about Darwin. Not one word. My graduate school roommate and I both read Darwin's The Origin of the Species. Together we both concluded there wasn't a word of truth in it. It wasn't worth our time. Nobody said anything. That started to change in the 70s. And it started to change with the publication of a remarkable book. That's Richard Dawkins. Um, not only one book, but several books. And Dawkins displayed an unexpected talent as a, a rhetorical promoter of Darwin's theory in a very radical form. The Selfish Gene is one of the really important books of the second half of the 20th century. 
And in some respects, I would put it together with syntactic structures by Noam Chomsky in the 50s, The Selfish Gene by Dawkins in the 70s and 80s. There were other books that followed, which just radically changed the way people thought of evolutionary biology. If he did nothing else, Dawkins at least showed that there was a radical interpretation of evolutionary biology entirely in terms of the gene so that the organism itself simply became an accessory to the gene's desire to promote itself into the future. And of course, Dawkins didn't talk about the gene's desire, he just talked about the genes that were successful in promoting themselves into the future. And that, that was a very radical departure from the rather unclear formulations of Darwin's theory in the 50s and 60s that Peter Medawar was, was referring to. But with the advent of a, a propaganda masterpiece like The Selfish Gene, and it was a masterpiece, um, all of a sudden a great many ancillary figures discovered that they had a remarkable rebuttal to the entire religious tradition. Because what Dawkins had showed them was that Darwin had provided them with a creation theory all its own. And they, they leapt to its defense. So that from, say, 1974, 1975, straight through to maybe 2005, every knee was asked to bend to Darwin's theory, and every knee did bend to Darwin's theory. Genuflection was widespread, ubiquitous, in fact. And this only changed after the, the impulse had exhausted itself, culturally and intellectually. But even though it changed, it never went back to the original starting point where nobody cared about Darwin. Darwin still ardently, ardently a point of attachment to biologists, to sociologists. It's considered a framework, even though the intensity uh, of rhetorical promulgation has subsided somewhat. It is now possible here and there to ask questions about Darwin, always with a very respectful gesture. Uh, God forbid I would give, be giving up Darwin's theory, but perhaps we should add something, perhaps with uh, some of the eyes in the theory need a curl cue and a period on top. Uh, perhaps there's something that uh, Darwin neglected to mention, like inclusive fitness or altruism, all sorts of moderate changes. But the consensus remains. It's changed from the 60s, 50s and 60s. The consensus remains. This is the overarching, all-embracing theory of life. That, that's still good. Yeah. <laughs> and that's... Um, I don't know if you've read Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Um, but he talk, he mentioned, he talks about Darwin in his book. And he says, I'm just going to quote one uh, sentence. He says, the science... And he's talking about uh, that... He's talking about Darwin's theory of evolution. The science may have proved far more complicated than Darwin ever imagined... But the basic idea is easy to grasp, it, it, and it has come to shape the way many people who are quite incompetent to assess the science have come to imagine the world. I think that's certainly true. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, except I, mean, I don't like the weasel word, the science. You know, if we're talking about the theory of evolution, I'd really like to see that science. Um, as far as I'm concerned, there's not much of it, especially if we compare it to places where we know that the question, where's the science, will be met with a real answer. 
say, modern physics, theoretical physics. We know what the science looks like when it's really science. There's not a whole lot of that theoretical biology. And you mentioned in uh, in your book, you mentioned John van Neumann, who, and he talks about, you talk about the three aspects of his, or he talks about three aspects of his skepticism of evolution. Can you talk about those three aspects? Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? I forgot. It's one probably- of them is it requires miracles. The other one is inadequate. It's inadequate. And the third one is the, the house in the distance didn't assemble itself idea. These are, these are anecdotal accounts. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't place too much weight on John von Neumann's animate versions. Um, he was in conversation, I think, with Stanislaw Ulam. I, I don't really remember. Uh, but he was just expressing, and I know the story from people who knew him, he was just expressing kind of common sense skepticism. It was very common in the 40s and 50s and early 60s. But there it is. There's the theory, all embracing, supposed to explain everything. But you know, it doesn't really square with what we know. I think so that was a, almost every mathematician I've ever talked to was sympathetic to that. Almost everyone. And you talk about uh, you talk. There's a you do a chapter called the Good Soldier, and you talk in that chapter. You there's a section on freedom of the will, and you talk about Brian Greene, the theoretical physicist who doesn't believe in free will. And, and you mentioned, this was interesting to me because uh, you mentioned of human bondage, which is one of my favorite novels by Somerset Maugham. And you quote a passage from of human bondage uh, in that section. Can you talk about the connection between the, the passage of Philip Carey's, you know, well, Philip Carey's desires versus, versus uh, what Brian not a, not a direct link between the, the philosophical question of, of uh, freedom of the will, which no one has made the slightest improvement on that discussion since the time of the Greeks. Um, every single person who denies uh, freedom of the will as an objective possibility is completely persuaded that he himself or she herself uh, possesses freedom of the will, especially when it counts. Uh, I've yet to hear one woman attached to the Me Too movement, philosopher or not, arguing that her assailant, ostensible assailant, should be exculpated on the grounds that he lacked free will. When it comes to the crunch, everybody believes in free will. Certainly, I agree. But we have no conceptual grasp. None whatsoever. It's a complete mystery. We can't even formulate it precisely. I mean... uh, philosophers pretty much agree that an act is free to the extent that you, uh, speaking directly, you could have done otherwise. It doesn't seem to me right. Why Why should it be the case that what I'm doing is free is contingent about what I could have been doing, which I haven't been doing? I mean, I can say uh, the rose is red, if and only if it could have been purple. No, that doesn't sound right. Why is the rose red? It's not that it could have been another color. It is that it is that color. But that takes us far afield. I could talk about the philosophy uh, underlying freedom of the will just as successfully as everyone else, which is to say with no success whatsoever. But the particular issue that I was talking about when I called from the shade Philip from uh, of human bondage was the ostensible claim in Philip in Brian Greene's book that somehow or other we are uncertain about the external world and what it contains and why it has the properties of 
causal connections that it does. But in reflecting inward with respect to our conscious experience, everything is bathed in all ambient light. That's just perfect nonsense. Our conscious experience is as much of a fog as anything else. And very often our deepest, most intense experiences are perpetually up for revision. Uh, we think we love X at a certain time. A year later, we discover it wasn't love, but infatuation. Infatuation turns to something else. We revise our impression. Uh, consciousness is continually undergoing a kind of revision, which is the real reason that all claims about identity politics founder on a deep philosophical misconception about what consciousness really is. It's far less well understood than the external world. Look, I'm absolutely dead certain that the best is solid. I'm much less certain about consciousness than anything presented to me than consciousness. That was the relevance of uh, Somerset Maugham of Human Bondage. The protagonist is discovering in himself that what he thought was awkwardness, shyness, a sense of insecurity, perhaps a titter of excitement, was in fact a love affair. He loved this woman. He had no idea why. It came to him like a thunderbolt. The woman's name was Mildred, a perfect name. <laughs> perfect Mildred. And uh, the book is, the novel is the story of his uh, catastrophic love affair with Milton, which ends unhappily, of course, as all these affairs do. But it's also a very sensitive study of consciousness and the pitfalls of consciousness. I once gave that novel to my father when I was young, and I said, if you read this book, you'll understand who I am. But I don't think he ever read it. So he, he's, he never understood me. Um, so let's turn to God, because uh, you you talked about, I think you talked about this in, uh, I can't remember where you, where you talked about this, but I, Galileo wrote a letter to Cardinal Beller, Bellarmine, and he, you talk about, he talked about the Bible is, is God's word, the book of God's word versus the book of God's work, which is the book of nature. Uh, so talk about, talk about the, that idea and what, what Galileo was, was trying to say. I'm not sure exactly. Let's see whether we can make this a little more precise. Um, Throughout the Christian tradition, uh, the idea is current that within the confines of the Bible, there is uh, a transcription of God's thoughts. A revelation, divine a revelation. revelation of God's thoughts, but, but also a revelation of his commandments as well. Um, what is extraordinarily interesting about Galileo is a transitional figure. I mean, there's Copernicus, there's Kepler, there's Tycho Brahe. At one end, there's the grandeur of Newton at the other. And there's Galileo somewhere in the middle, not quite a theoretical physicist yet, not quite entirely free of um, medieval theological traditions either. Very sensitive, uh, very sophisticated the mid-17th century, but somehow incomplete. He's got a very famous apothegm that the book of nature is written in the language of mathematics. What's so extraordinary about that is that trying to escape the idea that some powerful secrets are powerful because they are expressed in a language and written down 
rather than experienced in some other way. He reaches for precisely the same metaphor to explain the development of the new science of theoretical physics that didn't exist in the 17th century, but he reaches for the same metaphor. You might all, almost say, as, uh, as many, many natural philosophers would say, that the language of nature is written in mathematics by the supreme mathematician. That is a very common, common formulation. The language of humanity is written by God. The language of nature is written by a supreme mathematician. The extraordinary point about those two metaphors, obviously nature is not written anything. We write the theories. Nature is what it is. The world is what it is. Um, we reach for the same kind of intellectual structures to explain what we're doing. Galileo certainly did. Certainly did. And the tradition from Galileo to the present continues to do that. It continues in the same way. And you say that basically in this scenario, mathematicians are sort of a priestly class because they, they're the ones who can read nature, the book of nature. That's true, isn't it? Far be it for me to, to cast aspersions on that remark. <laughs> we priests like to stick together. <laughs> Exactly. And um, I'll just uh, close with this. You say in The Devil's Delusion, your book, The Devil's Delusion, one of the questions you ask, you, you say, has, has anyone provided a proof of God's inexistence? And then your answer is not even close. So what do you mean? What do you mean by that? And uh, what do you where does this all go? I mean, in terms of is, is, you know, a creator in terms of someone, uh, you know, a watchmaker, like, where does this go in turn in your mind? Well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good question, but not one I can answer, nor is it one I'm prepared to answer. Look, um, the, the relevance of, of my, uh, Rhetorical question, has anyone pro provided a proof of the inexistence of the deity? Uh, is directly related not to theological questions, but to social questions, the sociology of science, because it's widely assumed, very widely assumed, that the sciences collectively have provided a rebuttal to any and all claims about the existence of the deity. This goes back to Laplace's encounter with Napoleon, when Napoleon asked Laplace, what about the deity in your, in, in your system? Laplace said, sire, I have no such need for any such hypothesis. And that's been converted in the 20th and 21st century into the declaration, having no such need, there's no such being. Uh, if we have no such need for that hypothesis, it follows there is no such being. You, you, you find this argument all over the place. It's an incomplete argument, an empty man. But nonetheless, it's, it's very common. And... Um, at the very least, I'm suggesting, or I did suggest in The Devil's Delusion, that something more substantial is really needed if the sciences are to justify their claim to be the one and only, the unique creation story for our time. If they can't justify their, that claim, they have no, no business proclaiming their atheism loud and far. And in fact, in fact, hardly anyone is an atheist. Hardly anyone, not even the people who scream from the rooftops, I do not believe in God. What is really an issue with people like Christopher Hitchens or Martin Amos, his great friend, 
is a, a form of agnosticism. I don't have a belief about it. That's quite different from saying I don't believe that such, such a thing exists. That's an affirm, uh, affirmation. I don't believe that God exists. That, that's a very strong, very strong rhetorical exclamation and one that requires some substantial justification. And don't give, don't give me any of this business about never proving a negative. I don't believe there's a natural number between four and five and I can prove that. I want something comparable in the theological argument, but it, it never comes about. My point of view, it's important to recognize a certain amount of rhetorical skullduggery at work throughout many, many discussions, theology as well. I've, I've heard you say on uh, Peter Robinson's show that, um, you know, Blaise Pascal says every human, every man is born with a God-shaped hole in his heart, but the, the diameter of that hole in your heart is very small. <laughs> Stretches. I mean, you know, the diameter is not necessarily small. I think Pascal had it right. He said God is um, a circle whose diameter is infinite and whose center is everywhere. I think that's much closer to the truth. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there. Okay. Thank you, David Berlinski, for joining us. I appreciate the book. The book is Science After Babel. Let me just put this up on the screen. And uh, you guys have to get this book. It's, it's great. And David Berlinski is always a fun read and it, very fascinating read. So David Berlinski, thank you for coming on. My pleasure entirely. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Beckett Cook Show. Your support makes this content possible. All episodes of The Beckett Cook Show are also available on YouTube. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. Thank you to the team at Life Audio for their partnership with us. If you go to lifeaudio.com, you will find more faith-centered podcasts about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. Want to learn more about God and his will for your life one verse at a time? I'm Quinice Petway, co-host of the Your Daily Bible Verse podcast. I'm inviting you to tune in and subscribe at lifeaudio.com.